0: Stephen Sullivan is the award-winning author of more than 40 books and numerous short story collections. Paul McComas is the award-winning author of two novels and novella and two short story collections, all critically acclaimed. Together, they created Uncanny Encounters Live, Dark Drama, Sci-Fi Screams, and Horrific Humor, a series of short plays. Thank you for joining me, Paul and Steve.
1: Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much.
2: It's great to be here.
0: You know, I think that this is a project whose time has come. I always wondered, ever since seeing the original Twilight Zones, really, why there weren't more science fiction, horror, speculative fiction works on stage. Because the Twilight Zone clearly proved that you could put those ideas on stage and they didn't need a lot of production value. And I think that's what you guys do, too. It's the ideas. It's the characters. It's the situations that matter.
1: It's so interesting that you mentioned The Twilight Zone. I know that Rod Serling has been a huge influence on both Steve and me. Steve got to meet Mr. Serling. I envy him and Will for the rest of my life for having had that experience. But Serling, of course, started in Playhouse 90 and other uh, live television programs, which were essentially uh, filmed plays or or live broadcast plays, more accurately. And then The Twilight Zone though it did have some wonderful uh, cinematography in it, uh, tended to be one or two sets, three or four characters. And as you say, it was the the words and the performances and the ideas behind the programs uh, that really made them work. And with Serling, the genre uh, pieces always had something else going on under the surface, whether it was sociopolitical or just musings about the nature of, Rod
2: Serling uh, used to tour the country doing campus speaking dates and that kind of stuff. And around the time he was doing the second season of Night Gallery, he came to the campus that my dad worked at, which is uh, called SMU then, but is now known as UMass Dartmouth. And as a a young teenager, I was really anxious to meet him because I was enjoying the show. And I had especially enjoyed what I now know was one of the H.P. Lovecraft episodes he did and I was lucky enough to actually go and, and meet him there at a reception. I didn't actually see the speech but I got to hang around Rod Serling and listen to him tell stories and find out you know that he wouldn't drive a Volkswagen because you know they started under Hitler and all sorts of things like that and he was a really wonderful gentleman and it's uh, as Paul said, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was a, it was a great time and it's to be even mentioned in the same sentence. As Rod Serling is a huge honor.
1: Wow! Like, what a like, great story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that on some level, lo- I'd like to think that on some level we're maybe carrying the torch for Rod. Um, not to say that we've achieved his level of craft or artistic vision, but we're in the same neighborhood in terms of uh, trying to get serious, timeless. Uh, Relevant messages and thoughts and themes, and questions. Occasionally, across, at least, not uh, all the time. Within, and we don't want a,
2: people to think that we're kind of hitting you over the head or spoon feeding you messages with our work. Because my my main goal certainly is to entertain, and if I can add a few messages in now and again amid all of that, even if they're subtle ones about you know the equality of human beings and that kind of stuff, then you know that makes it even more fun and more wonderful.
1: Yeah. Lesson was the wrong message was the wrong word. You know, I think my main goal is probably to communicate something of value and worth. And then secondarily would be to do it in an entertaining way. And if Steve is essentially saying, as I've heard you say that just then, uh, that those are both important to you too, but in the other order, then maybe that's why we collaborate well. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny, when, That's an
2: interesting when we first met, we met at a convention okay. where we had been just com- entirely coincidentally thrown together on a panel, and right now that's five years gone, and I don't even remember exactly what panel it was, but Paul and I kind of were, we weren't polar opposites, but we kind of came at the subject from a kind of different viewpoints, and after the end of it, someone came up and said, wow, you guys were so entertaining, you were like Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- I think Paul said, "As long as I'm Ebert," <laughs> and I said, "No, I'm clearly Ebert." <laughs>
1: well, it was it was six years ago at the Southeast Wisconsin. It was six years ago at the Southeast Wisconsin Book Festival, and it was a panel on science fiction and speculative fiction. And I remember that one of the things that we disagreed about that day, and probably do still to this day, I was saying uh, the best science and speculative and dystopian work that i knew was not written by genre writers but was written by writers of literary fiction like margaret atwood and kazuo ishiguro and uh oh my uh p.d james children of men and i I think steve you had the audience on your side (laughs) as far as that one was concerned because who's going to show up for a science fiction panel at a book festival people who have their favorite genre authors and read them and all
2: the time. And I'm more but, of a but, genre you know, guy. I'm descended literarily more from, from Burroughs or, or Heinlein or Lovecraft than, than I am from, you know, kind of more, more literary forms. So sometimes I think the literary, whereas terms I have these two, it doesn't, actually come in and focus as hard as it should on some of the subjects leaving maybe a little too much for the imagination sometime again not that i want to hit anybody over the head with that and again my my main goal is to entertain and anything else that that follows on that in terms of messages is bonus for me
0: you know one thing i was thinking that yeah. uh, one thing i was thinking that both you guys share with uh uh, Serling is that while you write what both write what could be called genre fiction, it's slippery in that you will combine elements of all three of these subgenres or more, and so it, it there is a certain uh, I kind of I think literary feeling because you so freely combine science fiction, horror, fantasy. Uh, the surreal and just the plain weird and psychological elements are all pretty seamlessly, and I think that that's uh, an inclination that serves both of you well, and especially serves the play play form well.
2: Thanks, I'm, thank you, Rick. I'm really glad you feel that way. It's I, I think for for Paul and I, it's kind of just doing what comes naturally to us, and I I don't think either of us really <laughs> likes to be. Pigeonholed, and and maybe in some ways that's kind of difficult for a career because people always want you to be the writer that does this particular thing. And for me, jumping from fantasy to science fiction to horror, in some sense, there's not a lot of overlap between those genres. In a way, but in another way, they're all fantasy. You know, they're all subgenres mm-hmm. of fantasy as a whole, and that's kind of what interests me. And it interests me in the way that it intersects with the real world. And it interests me more than what we would call a standard novel or, or in some cases, a literary novel, because I get a lot of real life in real life. <laughs> and I don't really need <laughs> a, a lot of that in my writing.
0: Yeah, I know that feeling. I've got, to, I've got a sur- surfeit of real life myself. <clears throat> One of the things I like about genre fiction is that it allows us to externalize Uh, different uh, feelings that we might not otherwise be able to say straight ahead. And and the the famous quote is from Rod Serling where he says, I can have a Venusian or a Martian say things that I can never, words that could never come from the lips of a a Republican or Democrat. And that might have been more true back when he was, (laughs) when he was around. (laughs) They seem to be pretty free with their words now. but.
1: Well, between the, ne- the network censors and the sponsors, he was constantly uh, fighting for every last line and every last word. You watch an episode like Eye of the Beholder and he's getting words like uh, segregation and discrimination and, and in there that you would never hear outside the TV news, certainly not within what was supposed to be entertainment. So
0: talk about, uh, uh, Paul, when you start writing a story, do you have an idea as to what you're externalizing when you choose like a trope? And let's just you take one of the the uh, stories and uh, plays in here, Call Waiting, which is based on one of your stories. Um, when you when you chose that the trope for that story, did you think, well, I want to, I'm thinking about this, but I'm going to talk about it. This is the way I'm going to talk about it. Or did you just start plunge into the story and say, wow? That's what I'm. That's what I was on about.
1: Yeah, call of waiting. Actually, is not based on a story. It was written um, as a performance piece originally. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's a couple of these other oh. ones. Well, yeah, in a section of. In oh, a, it, was, it
0: was published in on that Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. Okay. It was. No, it's never a short story. Uh-huh. I wrote it and developed it and and performed it as a, a stage piece based on just the notion that the Jekyll and Hyde motif shows up in contemporary dating. And once I had that premise, it, it, the rest sort of fell into place. I certainly didn't know how it was going to end uh, until I got there. I I had a premise in mind and I uh, the beginnings of a character and I started to write. And that's, that is the way I write. I don't outline. I don't really plan in advance. I'm continually encouraging my writing students to be open to where the journey takes them and worry less about the destination. I think that makes for organic fiction, organic, uh, stage fiction as well. And where it took me was into this piece called waiting about a guy who can be an absolute jerk to the gal that he's trying to lose the gal he's trying to dump. And then insufferably grotesquely, um, Self-effacing and uh, um, saccharine sweet to the gal that he's trying to to court to well not not court towards marriage the girl he's trying to seduce uh, and and just throwing in the idea of mixing chemicals and drinking a potion for each required transformation uh, pulls what would otherwise be uh, the piece of you know satirical psychological stagecraft into the the realm of uh, genre work
0: well it, it makes it too i think and this is important it makes uh, genre fiction is fun <laughs> okay i really li- i like yeah. a good monster i like a good i like a good twist i like a good science <laughs> fiction invention I find it much more engaging and entertaining to contemplate drinking a potion to make those changes than to contemplate the, the kind of reptilian human being. And there are probably many of them out there who could just do that on a, make that turn on a dime.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So,
2: <laughs> and when Rick says reptilian, he doesn't oh, be- I, no, I do. mean that he believes that the I'm, Queen I'm, of England is a lizard person or anything like a that. Per-
0: she's a, 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 a reptilian. <laughs>
2: A reptile, for, a reptile from another planet, right? <laughs> the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things is that my approach to writing is, is actually almost opposite to Paul's in that I am I am a person that outlines. I am a person that outlines obsessively and writes from the plan that I have outlined. Now, I do discover things along the way, but usually I like to know where I'm ending when I start and often the ending is one of the first things that comes to me in a story but then as you go along you do develop other things and other ideas and sometimes themes that you didn't expect in your work on short stories I don't tend to outline because I discovered that when I did that early on in my career (laughs) that those short stories ended up being more of novellas And you don't want to be turning in 20,000-word stories for a 5,000-word assignment. Well, we're seeing, again, maybe
1: a reason why we're able to work together well, Steve, in more than a couple of ways. I think we're coming from from different perspectives and taking different approaches. And why would you want to collaborate with someone whose sensibility was very similar to your own? That's redundant. Uh, Maybe we cover more bases through these differences between us. Now, if you... Look at, yeah. the, at the pieces uh, just very quickly. One is that Jekyll and Hyde motif. Another one is about a statue of a lion that may or may not come to life at some point and bite off someone's head. Uh, but really, that's a piece about child abuse. Uh, another one is about extraterrestrial visitation. Uh, But it's about other stuff, too. I'll let Steve discuss that if he wants to, since it's his piece. Another one is about cryogenics and the nature of, you know, the human soul, if there is one, and existence. And what is mortality? What is immortality? Uh, There is, of course, the most terrifying three-word dystopian dark fantasy horror story ever written. And I'm not going to give those three words, but... It's political, uh, no.
2: and they have changed occasionally yeah. over. They the, the incarnations. The, the three of words change
1: depending on which right-wing nutcase seems to be likeliest to uh, garner the nomination. And honestly,
0: <laughs> uh, the Cruz, current one is very scares topical. Me still. more than
1: Trump in certain ways, but. Yeah. Another one is about voodoo. Uh, but again, it, it really is about, uh, romantic relationships and manipulations. Another one (laughs) is about, uh, well, it seems to be based on an actual real life Hollywood star, uh, who is quite eccentric and, (laughs) uh, may have been uh, lured into a belief system uh, that uh, has been largely discredited and shown to be a a huge con game Um, slash alien visitation. (laughs) And then the last one is about the end of the world as we know it. Right. So (laughs) both of we are ranging pretty far and wide. uh, The two of us between these these eight pieces over two acts.
0: I think that it's really fun. Now, have have these been performed as a whole somewhere? Not as a whole.
1: Some of them individually.
2: Yeah, mine have only been. There was a a theater group. The um, at the front of the book, there's a dedication to my friend Tim Mosbach, who used to have a theater group uh, not too far from where I live, and that theater group performed rehearsals of both of mine as they were being developed and then for reasons completely beyond any of our control the the group kind of drifted away and and broke up and stuff so so the productions actually never got mounted which is which is sad and then we came very close to having a a read-through a year and a half ago approximately and and again for Reasons that were beyond our control that ended up not happening, and and then Paul had a horrible car crash that thankfully he's mostly recovered from. So now we're back on the route to see where we can get the whole McGilla put together and yeah, perform we're hoping for that the perhaps
1: time. there are people out there in um, uh, Bukatron Land, in Agony Column Land, in Cleffel Land, who upon hearing this interview in will be intrigued enough to. Request a copy of this for uh, consideration for their theater companies. Uh, it, it's got a lot of great, po-
0: it's, yeah, it's got a lot of Amazon great parts too. in it so. for
1: women and men alike, for actors of both sexes, and um, some of it is quite serious, and a lot of it is very funny. Uh, it sets itself up well for. Uh, right. a Halloween staging certainly but really for any time of year because the science fiction stuff uh, is not season dependent and really the horror isn't either it isn't every day a horror day it is It is for me
2: Paul and I are both feminists and we're both egal- egalitarians so you know there's been a lot of talk lately about women's parts and how there aren't enough good parts for women in certain genre movies and, and uh, superheroes certainly and other things like that and that's just not true in any of these plays. In fact, in my play, The Alien in the Closet, the two main characters are basically designed to be male and female, but all the other characters, there are notes that say, even though these may appear to be male or female, there is no reason that you couldn't recast all of these really characters. That's a really interesting I, I wonder, are, that
0: seems like uh, that's very admirable. I think that a lot of other people could could do that i mean that would be an approach that you could take to plays where maybe that wasn't explicitly put down i mean and it's also on the other hand it is as ancient as shakespeare
1: (laughs) that's true that's true
0: although only (laughs) although only in
1: one direction there Rick was the problem yeah you know uh you didn't have uh all female casts uh doing shakespeare then you do now in fact uh you know, not Shakespeare, but uh, at Easter weekend, I saw an amazing production by Chicago's feminist group, Firebrand Theater, of Jesus Christ Superstar, with all of the um, sexes switched. And it reminds me wow. it wasn't until I saw that, that I kind of, awesome. it hit home to me that, oh, there was exactly one female speaking and singing part in this in this production, wasn't there? And look at all these great parts for men. Well, they reversed it. So we had a male Magdalene, and everyone else from Pilate to Herod to Christ to Judas was female. And in a way, it's almost like a, a genre lens because it, it recasts what you're accustomed to in a new way that allows you to get something new out of it.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. Uh, Paul, are, what are you working on now right, that's new?
1: What am I writing that's new? Hopefully everything <laughs> I'm writing is new, uh, what's, what's in- I a copy of oh, I have a copy of Mice and Men here, and I'm just sort of you know copying it over word by word because it's so brilliant. So that's what I'm writing. It's old. No, I'm sorry. Well, that you was, know the
0: old uh, Borges story too. No. Was it Borges or Lem? Who, who, uh, the man who, who wrote uh, Quixote about somebody right. yeah, somebody who writes Don Quixote, but because he wrote it in his place in his time, it's totally original. Even though the words are all the same.
1: <laughs> Good one. Well, when I was in film school, you know, we would. Yeah.
2: That's <laughs> like doing tie-in writing, <laughs> in which you know I recently rewrote the movie *Manos: The Hands of Fate* as a as a comedy novel, and it's it's a terrible movie, um, but it's a pretty funny comedy novel, and I actually I, have I a, to a straight it. horror version of it coming out soon and it's, it's always interesting to adapt stuff from other people in Paul, other what's up with you? and other times and you can do with it. Yeah.
1: I'm co-authoring a scholarly text, my first nonfiction. It's a, a book about Edgar G. Ulmer, the grade B and sometimes grade Z director of genre films like the black Cat, doctor, daughter of Dr. Jekyll beyond the time barrier. Um, but also of uh, one of the classic films, Noir, Detour. And uh, that's coming out in a couple, couple of years from University uh, Press of Kentucky. And uh, my co-author of Fit for a Frankenstein, Greg Starrett, he and I are working on The Mummy's Cruise, <laughs> which is the next in, not curse, mind no, you. not curse, but cruise. It's the next in a series of uh, novellas that, that we have been, uh, envisioning with Fit for a Frankenstein being the one that has actually come out and done very well for us. Uh, this one explains how the Mamikaris was brought from Egypt to uh, Maple Maplewood, Mapleton. I can never remember which one it is ton, I think so. Mapleton, USA. In one of the movies, there's a scene about a minute and a half long where you see the high priest uh, with the sarcophagus in the hold talking to a ship's steward, and then they're in Mapleton. <laughs> and that's just a wasted opportunity. Let me tell you, that was one hell of a cruise. All kinds of things happened on that cruise you would not believe. And uh, soon people will be able to read it for themselves. I, and
2: when Paul mentioned er- Ulmer, he should have mentioned that Ulmer is a grade A director of films that often had grade B, C, <laughs> right. D, or even Z budgets. So he's a brilliant guy that was working well beyond the budgets of a lot of the stuff that he dealt and with. While and why he that, appealed to me one of the from the time I was really an
1: 11-year-old making 8mm movies in the backyard and in the basement. You know, you would work on that with your friends, and then Shock Theater would come on, and you'd watch Daughter of Dr. Jekyll and... You just sort of think, ah, kindred spirit. I see, uh, in this movie that takes place circa 1900, <laughs> I see a uh, 1950s cars zipping by out the uh breakfast nook window. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they didn't, the think, I don't know if they noticed it and and, and didn't bother to reshoot or you know, didn't notice it till the rushes came back and then it was too late, but whatever. Uh, I've watched.
2: It's just a carriage. Well, you know, for you to see I've the watched da-
1: I've watched Daughter of Dr. Jekyll probably forty times in my life, and uh, the last, you know, thirty of them being um, while working on an essay about it. And the film always rewards another look. Uh, how many so-called A-grade movies can you say that about?
0: You know, it strikes me too that uh, for a man like Omar, that's a a passion for storytelling that's that's very fierce i mean if you really want to tell a story um and your chosen medium as film you'll just do it and do it and do it and, and i see obviously uh, the same uh, forces were at work with you within right. you paul as you were shooting your eight millimeter films too
1: yeah yeah i guess so it's so, you know the word amateur uh which which people tend to associate with uh um unskilled or unprofessional really means for the love of it. I'd like to think that anyone working in the arts is an amateur, even the so-called professionals. I mean, we're professionals, Steve and I, but we're also amateurs in that we do it for the love of it. And Ulmer was making movies that were getting completed and released and usually the second or even third bill on a multi-feature, but they were professional. More to the point, they were amateur. He He'd been blackballed early on in, um, in Hollywood and uh, his opportunities were were low to nil. But from industrial films to erotic films to a pirate film that featured rowboats instead of ships, uh, he worked with what he had to work with. <laughs> and I always find the results moving in part because of
2: All of us are who are writers are in some sense have to be amateurs because anyone that gets into writing thinking they're going to be Stephen King and make a fortune is almost sure to be sorely disappointed. And it's certainly love that drives me from one project to the next and, and what I'm interested in, in seeing and exploring and whether it's giant monsters or werewolves or people that are under the thrall of uh, pseudo-religions and, and pseudo-science, all of that is determined by my love of it, rather than, than by external forces. I mean, if we want money, there's always things that you can write that'll bring you money, but they're not things that, that are as close to your heart as the things Certainly, that you decide to on your own. Certainly there are people to
1: writing on your own. to fit a market niche. Uh, honestly, when, when you say, Steve, you, that we could do that if we wanted, I don't actually think we could. I I think if we tried to, we would end up subverting it. Uh,
0: You know, it's like
1: (laughs) like trying to write a happy story that's happy from beginning to end. I mean, Why would you want to read it? Conflict is the heart of drama. But if you just as an exercise, if you try to do that, invariably, you end up uh, subverting it and, and bringing the snake into the garden. It's so much more interesting once the snake is there.
2: But at the same time, you can do just craft for craft's sake. And, the, the you know, I've done a, a reasonable number of tie-in writing, which involves novelizations of movies and those kind of things. And the, the joy is always finding the things that you can bring to it and finding the craft in it. And when you're writing for movie scripts, often... Part of the part of the fun and part of the frustration, too, is trying to make the things that don't work in the original script work in the thing that you're working on. And in some grand way, that's what I did with Manos, The Hands of Fate, which I just found out today has been nominated for a Scribe Award by the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, which is a, a huge honor. And it's the thing that I'll be doing with the scary version of Manos that is uh, out at among Beta, congratulations! Right now. Congratulations, so
1: there, there is, Steve. That's wonderful. You should have ground. told me before the interview, then I could have said it. <laughs> 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 you know, Uncanny Encounters Live. Uh, it occurs to me when you're saying, Rick, that it, genre allows us to tackle things that otherwise maybe we couldn't or wouldn't. I think it's taboo topics. Mm-hmm that's what we tend to address through the genres and particularly oh dark science fiction and dystopian and dark speculative fiction uh you look at those stories uh and you look at the plays in the playlets in uncanny encounters live and uh it, it's that genre lens that lets you go there exactly, exactly. and uh yeah yeah it, it you put it very well in your forward for the book actually uh it's it's a bloody mess, but oh, what fun it is! And look at the pretty pictures we can make with this blood on the wall. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason this stuff has appealed to Steve and me and so many others since we were knee high to a lichen throw.
2: And <laughs> Paul Paul is always so serious sounding about all this stuff. It it is worth pointing out for your listeners that there's a lot of humor in these certainly my my two longer pieces the the first one is a kind of a a serious x-files kind of situation but with a lot of humor in it and the second one is just even though it's dealing with things like religion and the relationships between men and women and time alone versus time as a couple and those kind of things it's a rollicking crazy comedy with you know characters that resemble dean martin and and characters that resemble you know certain religious figures just kind of wandering through this mad chaos of hollywood lifestyle that the two main characters are engaged in and i'm i'm hoping that when we get this performed and people are seeing it up on stage or in whatever kind of venue it's being performed in that there will be just a, a heck of a lot of laughter going on because so that's part of the way we learn and the part of the way we heal each other, too, is by looking at our flaws and our foibles and finding the, the humor in it, rather than getting all tense and worked up like it's all some kind of a crazy political contest, the way the whole country is, seems to be just really tense right now on both sides and between the two sides. And it's all nuts. So let's, let's relax a little. Let's learn to laugh at ourselves a little while at the same time trying to learn and trying to deal with important issues.
0: Well, it, it, but the whole point of dark humor is to learn and to laugh while you're juggling chainsaws. I've been speaking with Stephen Sullivan and Paul McComas. Their new book together is Uncanny Encounters Alive." Thank you for joining me, Stephen and Paul.
2: Oh, you're very welcome.